We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello. Whoa. Extra music play. There we go. And Merry Christmas. It is December 27th, and this is another edition of The Truth Perspective on the SOT Radio Network. In the studio today, returning from last week, we have Ilan. Hey there. Carolyn. Hello. And William. And welcome back. And I'm your host, Harrison Cayley. Today, this week, we are going to be talking about a whole bunch of things, including some current events, things that have happened in the past week or so, as well as a kind of overview of the year, all the stuff that has happened, everything, all almost 365 days of it. We'll cover it all. At least that's the plan. <laughs> we probably won't get there. But to start out with, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a show um, on a book that we were all reading on early Christianity, or, you know, Bible manuscripts in general and early Christianity. And we wanted to bring up something, but uh, we just never got around to it. But now is the perfect time because uh, Christmas has come and gone another year, another festive season of gift giving and card getting and merry cheer all around. And food. And food, yes. Can't forget the food. Um, But, you know, Christmas, what's that all about? Um, Anyways, so, (laughs) um, you know, like like I mentioned a couple... Weeks ago, I was ro- raised Roman Catholic, and you know, while we went to church pretty much every Sunday, we made sh- made sure to go to church on Christmas, and that was always my favorite time of the year with all the Christmas carols and, and songs that would be sung in church. That was, that made it worth it. But you know, what was what's Christmas about? Well, baby Jesus, apparently. Our Lord and Savior is yes. born. <laughs> and so, you know, growing up, I never really questioned it. It was just baby Jesus. He was cute. Um, it was a good story. But, um, you know, after reading a book like Jesus Interrupted by Bart Ehrman, or any number of other ones, um, they, they pretty much all go into this if you look at um, kind of the academic approach to Christianity. Um, and so what I what we wanted to mention just about this is something that pretty much everyone in biblical studies knows, and you certainly don't hear it when you go to church. And that's probably because it's kind of controversial from a religious perspective, challenges some firmly held beliefs. And that is, I'll just go out and say it, baby Jesus didn't exist. Oh, no. Oh, oh my God. Well, well, of course. Okay, well, let's let's assume that Jesus did exist, just for the sake of argument. There, so there must have been a baby Jesus, right? But what I mean is the book, the stories that you hear about baby Jesus are fiction. And there's a few reasons for believing this from the study of biblical text. So just a little bit of trivia for you. First of all, uh, now sorry sorry for all those people whose you know eyes glaze over as soon as you hear the word Bible or you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we've got to get into this because it's very important to John, right? So these are the four stories or four collections of events and 
biographies of Jesus' life. Now, if you look at them right away, two of them, John and Mark, contain no birth story of Jesus, no childhood events whatsoever. It's just, bam, there's Jesus doing his thing as an adult. Well, actually, John kind of has a birth story in the sense that it goes back to the very beginning of time when Jesus existed as the word Logos. But that doesn't really count. That's something completely different. So the only two books in the Bible that talk about Jesus' childhood and birth are Luke and Matthew. None of the other New Testament books even mention things that Jesus did as a kid. And so let's take, when we take a look at Luke and Matthew, first of all, and we just look at the two stories that are there, we find all the elements that make up the the Christmas story. So, you know, we've got the Virgin Mary, all the angels, the wise men, the shepherds, Bethlehem, Herod's slaughter of the innocents. We've got the flea to Egypt. Um, no room at the end, of course. You know, the, the manger, all that. So those are all in those in these two books. But the weird thing is that the two stories, when you look at them, are completely different. The, all the main elements in each of the stories, those main elements don't show up in the other stories. There are very few similarities between Luke's and Matthew's portrayal of what happened. So the story we get in church is an amalgamation of the yeah. two. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they put them all together. But when you look at it, okay, the only things they have in common are, A, Mary was a virgin, and that she, so she had this immaculate conception, virgin birth of baby Jesus. And then two places, Bethlehem and Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem and then subsequently grew, grew up and stayed in Nazareth. But there are problems. First, okay, so let's just look at the Luke story. So the Luke story, this is the one with um, the, the angels announcing the coming of the Lord and telling Mary that she's going to get pregnant and bear the Son of God. Uh, I can't remember if they used that term or not. But, <laughs> but, uh, and then there's the, the census. So Augustus is the emperor, and in the year of the or the reign of Quirinius as governor of Syria, um, he, they're they're doing this massive census where everyone in the entire Roman emperor has to go back and to their lands. We'll get into that in a second and take part in the census. So Jesus and Mary, or no, Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, and there's no room at the inn. The shepherds hear about the you know the Son of God coming, and so they come to visit little baby Jesus. And then there's angels again. Um, Jesus is then circumcised eight days later, and then the family returns to Nazareth. And then he grows up and does all his great things as a kid. That's Luke. Now Matthew, Matthew, we've got Mary, but then we've got the wise men. So these are the wise men that go to Herod, and Herod learns that there's this you know guy that's gonna try to become a king and usurp his position. So he orders the slaughter of all the babies in the land, all the male babies. In this one, though, Joseph and Mary are already in Bethlehem and they're living in a house. So they're living in Bethlehem. They're not just visiting for a census. There's no mention of a census whatsoever. So then they hear about this slaughter that's coming and so they flee to Egypt. And they they hide out there for a while before then returning to Nazareth when the coast is clear and, you know, they can make their way safely. So those are the two stories, completely different and even contradictory. In one, 
they don't live in Bethlehem, in one and the other they do, but in both, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. In one, they uh, you know they stay there for a while. He gets Jesus gets circumcised. They do everything they have to do, and then about a month later they return to Nazareth. In the other one, they go and they flee to Egypt to get away from this massive slaughter. So contradictory accounts. That's one thing to look at. The second thing is just the historical context of what's going on here. First of all, a census that big, you'd think that we'd know something about it from the historians of the time. Um, we've got very good records, or pretty good records, for Augustus's reign, the things that happened. There's no mention of a census that big. And also the Quirinius, the guy in Syria, he didn't even become governor until something like 10 years after Augustus died. So they couldn't have been at the same time. There's a little historical inaccuracy there. But just like just think about this census. So Joseph goes back to Bethlehem because his ancestor David was allegedly from that place, a thousand years before Joseph lived. Can you imagine a census where the, everyone in the entire Roman emperor, empire had to go back to their ancestral homelands from a thousand years beforehand? <laughs> that it it just it's ridiculous to think about that, that everyone would... And well, think about it. Can you remember, can any of our esteemed listeners, like, do, they, do you know exactly what town your ancestors were in, like, a thousand years ago? <laughs> like, it's... It is ridiculous. But Erm's um, uh, book goes on to say that both Luke and Matthew were attempting to, in their own ways, and Matthew in particular to tie this figure that they were writing about to biblical prophecy. Mm-hmm. So Jesus had to be a descendant of, um, there's, uh, what they did is they went back into like a lot of Isaiah's Psalms, which often had nothing to do with messianic prophecies, but they tried to make the facts fit these previous writings as close as possible. So there's the calling of Jesus as the son of man, there's he's from Bethlehem, uh, the business of going into Egypt was out of Egypt. I have called my son. So mm-hmm. this was kind of a retrofitting of the story to the scriptures that presumably people were already familiar with. And, and Matthew's point was to make Jesus particularly acceptable to the Jewish population. Mm-hmm. Whether or not Matthew actually wrote it is indeed another question. Yeah. Well, and that gets to a third reason for suspecting these stories as being something other than the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And that is, uh, so I mentioned that the other two Gospels, Mark and John, have no record of Jesus' childhood. Now, it's pretty widely accepted, if not universally almost, among biblical scholars that both Luke and Matthew used the Gospel of Mark as a source. So you, you you can tell this because when you look at Matthew and Luke, they both follow the same structure as Mark. They focus on the same events in Mark, and then they kind of some in some passages they will change some wording, and some they'll add some more narrative in between. But you've got the skeleton of Mark in those two books. So Mark was the was kind of the the book probably written before Matthew and Luke. At least, you know, that's what most of these scholars think. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't true stories about Jesus' Jesus' childhood floating around there. Not necessarily. But when you look at Luke and Matthew, you look at the stuff they added, um, it's not entirely 
clear that, or there's no evidence that there were these stories before then. There are no kind, you know, you can't find any manuscripts or or other sources that say these things. And a curious thing, when you look at the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke, as we have it, is longer than an earlier version, a more uh, an earlier version of that gospel. And how we know that is because there was this guy uh, named Marcion, and he was actually uh, well, he was considered a heretic in years afterwards, like um, in the hundred and two hundred years, and then for the rest of Christian history after um, after his death. So he was considered a heretic, but he was the first Christian to create a New Testament to actually gather together some books and say, this is our, you know, our holy scripture. Before then, it was like um, a, a group might have their own book um, that they that they read, but there was no kind of canon. There was no official book of God's word. But Marcion put together what he believed to be the canon, so that included ten letters from Paul and a gospel. Paul was an early version of the Gospel of Luke. And the the scholars looking at it today, now, after, you know, a hundred of years, a hundred years of uh, controversy, pretty much accept that this was a more original form of Luke. And that the Gospel of Luke, as we have it now, which is combined with the Acts of the Apostles, was uh, an expanded version. So whoever wrote that one took um, the gospel that Marcion used, or uh, a common source between the two, and then added a whole bunch of stuff onto it. One of the things they added onto that gospel was the Jesus' birth story. The whole first, I don't know, two or three chapters, I can't remember how many it is. But uh, the, the original gospel of Luke started just like Mark and John with an adult Jesus. So you could consider the additions, uh, since they were trying to make case for the divinity of Jesus, they, the writers, and we don't know who they are, just because they have been labeled the Gospels of Luke and Mark and everybody else, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they wrote it. It was very common in ancient times to appropriate names, well-known names, to give credence to whatever it is you were writing. And I don't know, they didn't have copyright laws and that kind of thing. So you know, there wasn't about a whole lot you could do about it. But they also drew on many, many other mythologies that were extant at the time. So a lot of gods had virgin birth. Mithras had a virgin birth, and Babylonian gods were virgin births. And so this was one of the elements they could add on to the Jesus story to give more. A, it was a familiar trope. So, you know, here's here's another god who's you know been begotten by God with a capital G. Um, star gods. Um, you know, so that's that's something. Should we really put the cat among the pigeons and talk about Karata and Mark? Well, I think we'll save that for another time. Okay. Let's just okay. We'll tune, just, tune in next time. And yeah. We may talk about it eventually. We'll just say that you know we. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that anti-Christian or anything like that. Probably the opposite. But the important thing is to learn things and to to learn what's really going on. And if you're going to if you're going to look into something like, well, anything, that you should want to get the truth of it, basically. Mm-hmm. And when you find a lie, it's like, well, you kind of got to point it out, even if it hurts. But that doesn't mean that there isn't good stuff still there. I mean, 
I like baby Jesus, even if, even if it's just a story. Well, it was a way to gather around a certain moral code, a certain yeah. way of, of dealing with the world. And, and if you could gather that into one figure to look up to and emulate, then, then there is value in that. Yeah, and that's what it really comes down to is how you live your life and what kind of a person you are. Um, I think it's kind of extraneous what what exact beliefs you have. It's it's what you do with perfectly possible to be a genuinely good Christ, Christian, quote unquote, without believing in you know, for example, these stories of Jesus' childhood. They're kind of two separate issues, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but since we're on the topic of Middle East, Bethlehem, oh, yeah. um, something that we want first, first thing we want to talk about looking over the year and what's been going on recently is Israel and Gaza and what's been going on there. Um, because it seems like it's been out of the news recently. Recently. It was big news for a while and MH17 happened and then it's kind of been, except for a little blips here and there relating to Palestine and like uh, the official kind of been off the radar. So yeah. bring me up to date on that, guys. Well, I just saw, I'm kind of a, turned into a bit of a Twitter junkie lately. And just, just to tie the two together, somebody tweeted that if Joseph had had to make his journey today to Bethlehem, for starters, he would have to pass 35 checkpoints from his ancestral city to get to Bethlehem. So what does that tell you about the state of Israel today? (laughs) We were wondering also, just looking at the fact that a lot has been going on in Israel, uh, the most recent appalling thing was a 8-year-old child in East Jerusalem was getting off the bus, coming home from school, and an IDF um, soldier took a pot shot at him with a rubber bullet and damaged his eyesight. He has a fractured orbital bone. Um, in the Herat's version of it, he, uh, well, they actually tried to get both sides. The claim was there was a set of demonstrators and they were going, you know, they were about to be dispersed and this, you know, this kid just got caught in the crossfire. But in interviewing this boy's father, he said there was nothing going on at all. So apparently... Children are, it's open season on them in East Jerusalem. Well, that's nothing new. Yeah, charming. Well, um, some time back, that reminds me of a uh, a letter uh, that was uh, put out by a number of um, intelligence uh, employees of Israel's uh, intelligence agencies. And the gist of what they said was that they, and I, I quote, we routinely targeted innocent Palestinians. Uh, and I guess a good number of them have said enough is enough, and uh, they didn't like what they were being asked to do and implement. And um, I think that there are pangs of conscience uh, coming from uh, from some of the uh, former soldiers and uh, intelligence uh, employees of Israel who are coming out now. A few months back, you also had three of you know, former like IDF and Shin Bet leaders uh, addressing Netanyahu and his uh, coalition government about its policy towards Gaza and basically coming out and saying, we are on the wrong track and, uh, you know, seeing very bad things down the road for Israel. And, and also the statement that uh, 
that Israel passed about it wanting to be a a, a state for Jews, um, and that got recently passed, um, and that caused quite a furor as well. Um, earlier this month, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu announced that he was going to call for some early elections after firing two of his key ministers, which of course was the uh, finance minister uh, Lapid and the justice minister Livni. <laughs> and uh, he harshly attacked them as uh, actually trying to attempt to push on the government. And uh, <clears throat> this all comes on top of the, also with a vote for the UN General Assembly on the uh, Palestinian statehood. Um, got quite a few countries have already recognized that. Among them is Bulgaria, Cyprus, Malta, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and Czech Republic. And the only EU state is Sweden. And you've got Belgium, France, and Spain that are pending similar resolutions. So there's a lot of heat going on. And uh, a poll was also taken in Israel of about 500 Israelis. And 65% polled said that they would not want Netanyahu to continue running the country. Oh, boy. Yeah, he's, he looks like he's getting more and more desperate. Uh, it, any opposition at all seems to be squashed immediately within the government, without the government. He's just, the guy's losing it. He really is. Well, he only really has the support of the most you know, far-right extreme faction of Israel mm-hmm. who are you know, taking the most um, fanatical uh, interpretation of what you know they perceive to be the laws of the Bible and and um, kind of deciding that Israel has to be this, you know, singularly Jewish uh, extremist uh, nation. Well, he has um, definitely made it his business to court them whenever there's been arguments over illegal settlements, uh, you know, land just simply taken by um, some West Bank settlers who are predominantly American, apparently, and they come to Israel and they grab a hilltop and they throw a couple trailers on it. He immediately provides them with uh, protection. He will hook up utilities for them and keep the area clear till they can build something permanent, pushing out who's ever in the area. And so they will. I mean, it's this great symbiotic relationship. They support him. And he supports this uh, ongoing illegal land grab, burning down trees. I mean, it's just tragic pictures. Apparently, the oldest olive tree in Israel, like it's like 900 years old, was torched by settlers. I mean, these, these people are nuts. Just nuts. Illegal settlers would say that. They are not, you know, the settlers sounds like such a, you know, innocuous, you know, groundbreaking, pioneering thing. They aren't. They are illegal occupiers. There's no question. When it's- yeah, and this this month alone, there's over 800 new settlements being uh, conducted on the West Bank. It's just n- never going to stop, apparently. But we're not hearing about it. And normally, at least, there'd be some mention of it somewhere, and somehow uh, they've managed to bury it or skew it. Uh, did anybody see that article that was written uh, about how the New York Times covers events in Israel? No. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, I'll make sure it gets up. But uh, somebody took it upon themselves to analyze the uh, story about the story about the poor little kid in the rubber bullet and another Israeli child, and the, it points up just the difference in how things are presented. K 
can skew your perception. Mm -hmm. So when they were talking about this Israeli girl, it was an Israeli child, eight years old, da 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 da, and you know, very very emotive, emotional language and the anguish of the father and all of this other stuff. And then when they came down, and he gives a few more paragraphs of analysis, and he comes down and talks about this reporting, and it just says Palestinian youth shot. Very dry reporting, no background, no context, no uh, no anything to tug at you and make you feel some empathy for this child. It was just reported as a statistic uh, when they were talking about this other child who had been hurt and how tragic it was, and there's an uptick in Palestinian violence. Uh, he just points out what the, what the New York Times leaves out in terms of context and the fact that there had been four other attacks previously by Israel on children in Gaza and the West Bank. And, and uh, so there might be a little bit of righteous anger that might have motivated. I mean, nobody wants to see a child hurt or anyone hurt. But the fact that these two different ways of skewing the story um, is what keeps the Western, and particularly the U.S., asleep as to the reality of the situation. And that's really how... Uh... Operation Protective Edge uh, was covered as well. Um, if you remember last summer when uh, Israel attacked Gaza uh, after a very questionable story of three Israeli um, teenagers being kidnapped, um, 2,200 Gazans were killed. Over 500 of them were children, 11,000 injured. And uh, you know, every time a rocket hit a gas station in Israel, the headlines blared about uh, Israel needing to protect itself. In the meantime, you had uh, hundreds of homes um, being decimated and the wholesale carnage. A little correction, something you said, Carolyn. You said no one wants to see children or anyone hurt. And unfortunately, that isn't true. Now, no normal person wants to see children or anyone hurt. But mm -hmm. that label can't really apply to the people that are responsible for these kind of things. There are, well, if you look at the Israeli leadership, several of the, well, I won't give any statistics because I don't know them, but a large percentage of the population, the Israeli population itself, wants to see children killed. And like I just, I just saw a picture of a, looked like an IDF guy on, um, well, he was with some IDF guys, but he was wearing a T-shirt uh, on. This is two for one. No, it wasn't the two for one one. Oh, that it, was disgusting. It was basically like it was on the the Gaza operation, like something like I went there, I, I or it was kind of like a wainy weedy wiki. I came, I saw, I conquered kind of thing. Like I I went in there, I destroyed, I had fun, or something like that. Oh. And this was on his T-shirt, and that's just the mentality of some people that enjoy killing people, and. Unfortunately, we see that a lot mm -hmm. all over the place. Yeah, yeah. there was some IDF guy tweeting. Yeah. yeah, I shot a kid today. It was great. Ugh, yeah. Well, didn't some, some medium-level government official come out and say that, you know, that that all the children should be killed and their mothers raped and this is what happens when you attack Israel? That was a couple months ago. Well, I know there are some rabbis that say things like that. Mm-hmm published and it, yeah it's it's horrible stuff i mean and the the thing about the kid i wouldn't have been surprised if the headlines said something like 
terrorist in training killed in in Gaza because that's how a lot of Israelis and people around the world see Palestinians and Palestinian children in mm-hmm. specific is that they are just little terrorists future threats yeah and um you know you're doing doing the world and Israel a favor if you just get rid of them and yet at the same time they proudly publish pictures of you know 6-year-old kids at you know it's like an Israeli Defense Day, some kind of country fair kind of thing, and they're being handed automatic weapons and shown how to use them. And isn't this great? Like the the, the split in their minds is, is astounding. So I just uh, one of our chat room chatters um, gave a link to the the photo of this T-shirt. It says "Deployed, Destroyed, Enjoyed, Gaza 2014." Wow, lovely. Yeah, we started talking about. Christianity, and just to to get in you know to get into kind of one of the reasons I think that this sort of stuff happens is that we talked about a couple weeks ago when, when we talked about the book actually uh, Jesus interrupted Karen was mentioning some things about religion in general and basically religions are a very good way of hurting people into a specific mindset to do certain things and I think part of the reason this works is that like we looked at just the gospel, just these two stories in Luke and Matthew and the contradictions in them. When someone reads these stories, they first of all they're conditioned to accept them as the, the the full truth and the inerrant word of God. But there are various very obvious contradictions in them. So they're forcing themselves into a state of kind of weird cognitive dissonance where they're able to hold these contradictions in mind or at least hold them out of mind while accepting the truth about them. And I think that just does a number on people's brains where they can't think any longer. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a perfect opportunity. It's kind of fertile ground for implanting suggestions that can then be unscrupulous individuals who will manipulate other people. Well, that quote is, those who can make you believe absurdities can persuade you to commit mm-hmm. atrocities. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that's I think that's part of what we see. Like when we look at the at a lot of these so-called settlers, they're kind of the the most extreme radical um, holders of the Jewish faith. When you look at them, they're like they're kind of crazy when you think about it. But oddly enough, there's a there's a kind of weird match and relationship between these kind of radical Jews on the one hand, and then the radical Christians on the other. So the people that that firmly believe these um, these stories from the Bible, and who, whose minds are kind of gone to mush by holding these contradictions. So on the one hand, you've got the Christians who want to see basically the Armageddon come about in Israel. So they want to see a whole bunch of people die so that Jesus can come back and and rule the planet. And so they're really friendly with the Jews because they they want this to happen. But on the other hand. They basically are counting on a whole bunch of these people dying and then maybe converting to Christianity. And then the the Jews, of course, in Israel, they kind of will say, "Okay, well, I can use or we can use some help from these Christians, even though we think they're crazy and and uh, and you know we don't like Jesus." But you know, it's a kind of a marriage of convenience that they each kind of use each other and. Underneath the surface, kind of hate each other, but have this kind of weird symbiotic relationship. Very pathological. And yeah, <laughs> but 
on the subject of Israel is, now this will tie into another topic. Are we done with Israel? Well, I just wanted to yeah. add a little side note. Today is the sixth anniversary of the beginning of Operation Cast Lead. That was the first really large, I believe, very large-scale uh, assault on Gaza, which, of course, gave the, the template for the latest one, Protective Edge. But the particularly disgusting thing about it was apparently the initial wave of bombings was tied to uh, the timing was just as school let out. So that just kind of tells you what kind of people plan these things. All these kids in the street heading home, and here come the F-16s. It was just idiot. Well, you know, that's something similar happened in Ukraine, mm-hmm. or it happens regularly these past months. But um, there, I saw two videos. One of some of these, I can't remember if they were uh, if they were National Guard or like or the right sector guys, but they were they were standing outside of a school and just firing their their assault rifles at it, just and laughing about it and just firing at this school. Mm-hmm. Now, so that total an elementary school. Then of course there was the the shelling of the, of one of the schools in Donetsk on the first day of school mm-hmm. killed um, I think uh, something like three people a teacher and some parents or something like that luckily no children were harmed but they bombed the school on the first day of school that just boggles the mind mm-hmm. and so that's what that's what I mean when I say some people. Like like in Batman, some people just want to watch the world burn, and they're all over. It's not you know, it's not just in Israel or in the states. It's every country has its psychopaths, and when when the conditions are right, like in Ukraine, like in Israel, when you've got this manufactured external threat that creates the the war environment, it's just okay. Well, hey, I want to kill some people. I've got the perfect opportunity. Now you know, I've got kind of free license to go and do it. And I'll be totally approved. I'll get exactly. a medal. Yeah, I'll get away with it. From Israel and sharing a psych- psychopathic mindset, it is definitely in the States. And psychopaths all over, especially when they're empowered, find a way to feed each other. Uh, this is a story that's approximately two years old, but apparently the New York Police Department has an office in Tel Aviv, and there are regular training sessions with police departments from all over the states go to Israel and learn crowd control and just, you know, tactics for, for handling large groups of unruly people. And we have been seeing those applied in real time with the number of police shootings that we've seen in the states. So it's definitely, if not exported, at least trained and encouraged. So it's hard to say, you know, who's the source of it. They all seem to feed each other. But we've noticed in the news that even after Ferguson and all the trouble, that police shootings have not in any way, shape, or form seemed to have slowed down. It's like somewhere, somehow, they've gotten the message that um, they're good. You go do whatever you want, and we've got your back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, on the heels of all that is this new shooting, uh, I think, two miles, just two miles away from Ferguson. Uh, where a young man um, was in... His last name was Antonio. There was a lot of it about it. Right. And uh, we were talking about this earlier, and you said that an an original snapshot of of Antonio um, indicated that he didn't, in fact, have a gun. Well, what Uh, was the details? Like, what happened? uh, Apparently, um, 
I, I couldn't find it. This is again, you know, bless Twitter. You get things immediately. Uh, the police were investigating another robbery. This guy was near them, possibly maybe wanting to film what was going on, but he pulled something out of his pocket and there was a still, somebody put up a still of it and it had a glow on it. So it was probably a cell phone, but they thought it was a gun and they just put 16 bullets in the guy right there. And so now these, uh, so what was the, the story about this photograph? Oh, well, just that um, it was probably a uh, cell phone that he was holding because of a flash uh, that, that or a glow that emanated from the phone and that the gun that was uh, found on the scene uh, that was supposedly uh, is, you know, <laughs> I mean, what else can you deduce from that except perhaps it was a plant? Weren't you saying, Carolyn, earlier that... Uh... There are two photos, like surveillance camera footage or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and one showed no gun in the scene, and apparently two hours later, a gun magically <sighs> appears on the ground. It was it was just so blatant. So you, so so blatant. So you know, I, I I'm pretty sure I don't have any any evidence, but this is my conspiracy theory of the day that these that police officers basically have like a suitcase full of spare. Illegal guns in their trunks and, and their, drugs, their, and and drugs, <laughs> and you know whenever they need them, they just it's like oh oh crap, you know that was a cell phone. Oh, runs to the back of his trunk, you know, oh just you know puts down the gun next to the guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, not only that, just just to make the story even better, uh, the shooting officer somehow did not have his body cam or his dashboard cam running. Mm-hmm. How convenient! How convenient! Unreal. Unreal. And then there's the whole thing happening in New York with the police uh, turning their backs on de Blasio when he's trying to give some kind of tribute to the two guys who were killed by a white man. Let's not let's not forget that. A white guy uh, who apparently had some kind of mental break. He shot his girlfriend and then put something up on Instagram. I'm going to go kill some cops and went off and did it. Um, as an interesting side note to that, somebody uh, tweeted that didn't become a story. A woman died, but it didn't become a story till some cops died, which is another commentary. <laughs> well, like you mentioned, it's this isn't a new thing, and it hasn't stopped. So it hasn't stopped after Ferguson. It's continuing on, and it's been it's been like that for a long time. In just some statistics here, from May 2013 till September 2014 of this year, there were at least 1,560 cop shootings. So the cops killed that many people in in the United States in that period of time. Now, first of all, we don't know if this number, the number's probably bigger because there is no recording um, center or procedure or protocol for keeping track. track. Nobody's keeping track. The the only people keeping track, a couple websites um, from just ordinary citizens that have started these website at, websites as kind of open source, um, community-driven projects to collect all the examples of police killings, or I should say, yeah, like police killing unarmed or just uh, suspects or whomever. There's no official numbers for these, so they have to, you know, you have to go through uh, court records and police records and um, there's no one-stop place for statistics for statistics and if you file in a freedom of information act uh, often you'll be denied mm-hmm. those i mean the, uh, the one guy i remember right he uh 
He did say, I'm starting this open source. If you have information, again, on Twitter, Twitter's full of junk, but there's good stuff there, too. Uh, he wanted you to send it to him. He had a link, but he detailed how many, how much trouble he had uh, having to go to individual police departments and being obfuscated. I mean, some people were forthcoming, I guess, who had fairly decent low statistics, but others just flat out refused to provide them. Yeah, so, and, and they lie. They'll lie to you about the law. About about the law of providing this kind of information, but like so, using these numbers, um, probably low. Again, this is from one of those open source projects. About five percent of all murders that take place in the United States are committed by police officers on duty. Wow! It ranges between three and eight percent, depending on the state. Now, to use just one state as an example, Nevada, thirty percent of those people killed by the United States, like police are mentally ill. So almost one in three of the people that the cops kill in the States are mentally ill. Now, that figure of 1,500 you know, killed from May to September over that more than, more than a year period, so that works out to about 92 people per month, about three people per day. Good Lord. So every day, police kill about three people over the United States, at least. 1980, for example, <clears throat> there was about 3,000 SWAT raids conducted in the United States for the year. But today, we've got more than 80,000 SWAT raids per year in this country. So that just opens up all kinds of disasters and mistakes that can happen. Yeah, like the like the when the police, I think it was even the wrong home when they busted down the door and threw the flashbang grenade into the the toddler's crib. And it blew up right. right next to the toddler. You know, without getting too conspiracy theory, you may as well go to the idea of whether or not this is by design. So you have these police forces increasingly trained in what is are essentially military tactics, and then uh, because the defense industry needs to make more money, they they rotate out the equipment that is military, and they give it to you for free. So all of a sudden, these guys have all these toys to play with. And if you got a toy, you want to play with it. So it just mm -hmm. it just spirals. It just spirals, and the, the the cycle gets stronger and stronger. So you have the mindset of a military operation. You have the equipment to pull one off, and then you have this uh, obviously presumed innocence has gone by the board ages ago, mm -hmm. and this is what you get. Yeah, and just reading the news every day, it's it's heartbreaking and. It's sickening just to read every day the kind of things that happen. Mm -hmm. Just a few days ago, there was that, I read the, an article about that old woman, I think she was in her 70s, that the, the cop kicked her, like basically karate kicked her in the knee and broke her leg. Mm -hmm. There was the old man that mm -hmm. that made the comments like... The, uh, Something, yeah, I think he called the cop a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> and so this guy beat up this... this this 75-year-old. 76, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, oh, Man, yeah. <clears throat> they have free reign on public as well. You got this officer, this Illinois police officer, who's just been arrested for burglarizing homes and businesses while on duty and in <laughs> uniform. Oh my goodness! <clears throat> He's now accused of ten counts of burglary and a count for residential burglary. You know, he, only, he not only stole money, but he also stole guns from personal residences. Inside information on Canadian police. One of my college professors was ex-RCMP, and 
he taught sociology at the University of Alberta, Grant McEwen College, and also the Cop College in Edmonton. He was a really nice guy, a uh, good professor too. But I remember one of the first days of class in his, sociolo- in his sociology class, he asked everyone in the, in the room, because he was telling a bit about himself and his history, and so he asked what kind of people be- become police officers. And so a few, people, a few hands went up saying, oh, you know, people that want to protect the community and just want to do good things. And he's like, no, next, next. So after a few answers, I put up my hand and I, and I said, I think I, I think I said just psychopath. And he said, yep. And he said that those that the people that want to become police officers are often the bottom of the barrel, the worst guys. They want to become police officers because they want a gun. They want license to beat people up and just be a thug. And so he said, you know, God bless him. As a as a teacher at the cop college, he tr- he personally tried to weed those people out. But it was kind of it's like a it's a Herculean task to to do so because it's just that's just the way things are. Mm-hmm. And especially if, if those sorts of people manage to rise a bit in the ranks, then they have the which means of which they do. They have the means to uh, circumvent those kinds of efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, wasn't there a ruling by some uh, a judge? I'm not sure it was a Supreme Court judge allowing there used to be all right i remember this in the 60s and even into the early 70s if you wanted to apply to be a policeman you had to have at the minimum a college degree in some kind of related field sociology or maybe you took a a course in in criminal law or something like that but you had to be reasonably well educated to even get in the door and then you had to pass all the physical requirements and all that stuff but there was a ruling recently allowing the lowering of IQ requirements. You can be an idiot. You almost have to be an idiot these days. And then it does not matter. You can have a GED, barely scrape through, and, you know, I guess if you've got the right personality, you're in. It all makes sense now. It all makes sense. Well, basically what what they're creating without, you know, having to call it, since it's against the Constitution, like that means anything, is you have a standing army in the states. Mm-hmm. You have a standing army with divisions all over the country. We just happen to call them police departments. Well, you know, we're kind of giving the U.S. a bad rap here. Oh, is that possible? You think? Well, well you know what? You know, other countries are just as bad. <laughs> and... Well, yeah. We're supposed to be exceptional, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, we are no. the shining beacon of democracy, human rights. Well, I have one example in mind. This is a kind of overview of one of the things that happened this year. Mexico. September, when was it? Middle of September, the 43 students that were going, they were on a bus going to to a protest, and then they all disappeared. Some of them showed up dead, and investigations were launched. You know, parties went out to, to search, and mass graves were discovered and dead bodies. And it turns out all these dead bodies weren't the students in question. They were other people who had just been murdered. And it turned out that this, these murders, that all, that all 43 of these students were killed by a, essentially a death squad this from this drug cartel that was basically that was working for the mayor. Now, oh, yeah. I remember that. 
that he and he and his wife basically ruled this town like a fiefdom. Mm-hmm. So, so that you know, Mexico they do things a certain way. You know, the mayor just calls up the local gang lord and says, you know, I want a few people killed. In the states, they just happen to be wearing badges. So you know, it's six of one, half dozen the other, really. But that that just like all these police shootings, like Ferguson, Michael Brown, like Eric Garner. There were protests going on all over. There were there were protests. I think I don't know if they're still going on for the, in Mexico for this. Oh yeah. Yeah, but oh, yeah. there but there are protests all over. So there are people that see what's going on and that are protesting about it. Now of, co- of course, what happens to protesters? You get the the riot police that come out, and it's just more of the same. Now one can hope. A tipping point. I mean, everybody thought that after Ferguson, you know, that it would die down after six weeks, and it's still going on, and it's spreading. And even worldwide, you get people tying their particular local problems to Ferguson. So the the recognition of it being a a worldwide issue, that everybody has their own particular flavor in their country, but the the underpinnings of it are are essentially the same. So Mm -hmm. there's there's maybe some hope there. And at least the recognition of the situation is, is becoming more wide. Well, speaking of worldwide, mm-hmm. let's expand our okay. perimeter a bit. Uh, I just want to give a couple updates on some stories that have been big this past year. So first of all, we've had Ebola. So the biggest outbreak. Ebola? I haven't heard about that what? in a while. Ebola what? Ebola, yeah, no. No, no, that's over. That's yeah, well, apparently, if you if you listen to the news or you know watch Fox, apparently it's over because you're not seeing a lot of anything being reported about Ebola recently. But like I was saying, okay, biggest outbreak of Ebola in history. We've got what upwards of seven thousand people died so far. Mm-hmm. Um, number of people who have who have had or have Ebola, something like what was seventeen thousand or something like that. Mm-hmm. In that range. That we know about. That we know about. Um, and But no, it hasn't been in the news recently. Just like Israel, for some reason. that's it did have this little blip uh, in New York uh, just recently. Um, the New York Post published an article about a man. Well, here's a story. Healthcare workers display protective gear, which hospital staff would wear to protect them from Ebola infection. Okay, that's a description of the picture in the paper. Uh, a man suffering from Ebola-like symptoms. Ebola-like, was rushed from an Upper West Side apartment building to Bellevue Hospital on Tuesday. That was uh, Tuesday the 23rd. Uh, But officials determined that he did not have the disease, authorities said. The patient recently returned from Liberia and and started suffering symptoms such as high fever Saturday night, sources said. Now, they called out hazmat uh, workers and fire officials uh, to help usher this guy in. Um, they said the patient was given a blood test at Bellevue and it showed negative for Ebola. He was given an alternative diagnosis and is currently in critical condition, but they don't say what that alternative diagnosis is. So I suspect if we're going to hear more of these type cases, and I think we will, uh, they're going to uh, call them uh, Ebola-like malaria. <laughs> well, the thing is, too, um, you know, I'm sure these doctors, you know, let's, let's hope, are saying that in all sincerity. And the problem is, is that Ebola, being a virus, can mutate 
at an incredibly mm-hmm. rapid rate, just like any flu virus. And while they may be running the tests and the tests return negative for whatever strain they're looking for, but if it's mutated, you could very easily have some version of Ebola, but their mm-hmm. their testing procedures won't say that. So they're like, oh, great, not Ebola. Well, there's another angle to this, too. Because the, the lack of media coverage recently has been kind of strange. You can you can look at kind of Google Trends statistics and you can see the the spikes in in coverage of Ebola and it just drops off completely in the last month or so. And there was an interesting report from uh, an investigative journalist. It was on Fox News, but the woman who did the the report, she is an ex um I believe it was CBS. Yes. She worked there for 20 something years. Um, Atkinson, Cheryl Atkinson. Cheryl Atkinson. Now she reported something. Now it's been it's been kind of misinterpreted, I think, in many alternative news um, or, the, or just the people that are presenting this story in the alternative news or the mainstream, because she mentioned that she had called the CDC to get some information on uh, on just Ebola in general. Now this was this was back on December first that she first published this on our website, and she had a quote from the CDC saying, "I don't have the exact quote." with me, but she had said, but the CDC had said that they are currently mon- monitoring 1,400 individuals in the United States who had returned from Ebola um, countries that have that have these Ebola um, cases. Now, so, so some people are saying, oh my God, 1,400 cases of Ebola in the United States that they're not telling us about. Well, not exactly. These are just people that have come back from those countries that are being monitored for Ebola. So we don't know how many of them are showing symptoms. But the, the interesting thing she said when reporting this on Fox News just recently, um, that they that the CDC did not plan on putting that information on their website. Now, so this isn't publicly available knowledge that the CDC is monitoring 1,400 people as possible um, carriers of Ebola. So if this gal hadn't leaked it, nobody would know. Yeah. And so, and so, um, one sec here. Just wait. I think we have a call here. I'm going to see. We've, been, we've had you on hold for a while, so let's just see if we've got someone. Anyone there? Okay. Yeah, Harrison. Caller, are you there? Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I can hear you. Who is Brent. this? Brent from New York. Hi, Brent. How's it going? Oh, you're right it's there in the well. middle of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I called in when you guys were talking about the uh, the cops because I went to the protests on uh, – mm. it was a big march on the 23rd that they kind of uh, – they, they encouraged to not have happened. Bajia was not very happy about it, but they had it anyway. And um, there was probably about 1,000 people started by the uh, the Plaza Hotel up on uh, 59th Street and uh, 6th, Ave- or 6th Avenue, uh, Park Avenue, uh, somewhere right around there. Um, <clears throat> and then it went down, uh, it marched down, uh, I think it was Madison or Park, or no, 5th Avenue, it was 5th Avenue. And it goes down 5th mm-hmm. Avenue. And I was, we were, I was with one of my friends and we were uh, marching down and it was kind of interesting because the, uh, they're walking by all these like really ritzy stores, and they had uh, like the, 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 there were shoppers inside that were dressed very nicely, and then there's you know the rabble outside chanting as you're going down the street. <laughs> what so, was the general? Probably about a thousand people. 
Okay, what, what was the mood? The, what was the mood of the crowd and and the cops? Like, how how did it go down? Uh, well, the the crowd was. Uh, I mean, it was raining, so there was probably going to be more people. But they were they were you know they were vocal. They were excited to be there. Um, they didn't seem terribly you know like angry. I mean, they had a couple people giving some speeches before the march started, um, and they were coordinating via text message. So you could like send a text to this like listserv, and it basically would give you updates about, you know, where they were heading. And they, they went down Fifth Avenue and then they turned. And there were there were a good amount of police. There was probably about, I would say, half as many cops as there were protesters. So it was probably about uh, a couple hundred cops. Um, and they were they were rather chill. I mean, they weren't heavily armed. They weren't riot police. Um, they were just kind of standing back and watching and sort of kind of coordinating as they went down um, the avenue. I only stayed with them for a few blocks because I wasn't feeling so hot, but um, it, it seemed very chill. I think they only had a few, a very few arrests, and uh, but people, people are pissed off, and the the movement will continue. I got a flyer while I was there for a planning meeting that was happening uh, yesterday, so they're they're going to continue. Um, they're going to continue having uh, you know a whole winter of actions is like the idea. So I think pretty much you know once or once a week or once every other week we'll hear about something happening. Okay, how's how are things with the the mayor? I mean, we've seen a, a lot of photos of cops turning their back on the mayor and all that. So, what's the the general opinion of how the, how he's handling things? Well, nobody likes De Blasio. <laughs> I mean, um, he's he's kind of he, he's not really not really well liked by the police, and the the locals aren't really a big fan either. So he's got really no one on his side. Um, there's a, a couple of the people that um, – a couple of the movements do appreciate some of the stuff that he's trying to do. He's He started to implement – the reason the police really kind of went against him was because he tried to implement some ref, minor reforms. I think they're, they're doing a pilot program with, with the cops going to start wearing cameras now, and he has them um, doing a whole retraining process. So all the police officers have to go through some sort of mandatory retraining Um but they, the police are not very happy about it. And then ever since these, these two officers were, were killed in Brooklyn uh, like a week and a half ago, um, they've, they've really, you know, like the Patrick Lynch is the head of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association or the PAB, which is like the largest police officer union in New York. And he's kind of a total whack job. If you listen to some of the stuff he says, you know, it's like there's a lot of people with blood on their hands and he blamed the protesters and he blamed uh, City Hall and you know he's he's got a he's got a lot of inflammatory things that he was saying and now the uh, an email came through um, from the department that they puts them on quote unquote wartime footing which basically oh, means Lord. they yeah well it's it's actually not as quite as bad as what it sounds but they are um, they're basically they're only responding to calls when there's, you know, two squat cars or two groups of, of officers responding now instead of one. And mm-hmm. they are uh, advised to not arrest anyone unless absolutely necessary, which, I mean, that's kind of a good thing, but it kind of implies that, that they were arresting people when it wasn't absolutely necessary beforehand. So. so de Blasio, I mean, despite the fact that he seems to be universally disliked, was actually trying to at least in in a minor way, try to improve the situation. Yeah, with that the cops. That was the that was my my perception was that he was trying to do something. I mean, you can debate mm-hmm. about the effectiveness of cameras or not, but whatever the retraining involves, I, I really don't know. But he's 
generally despised among most of the uh, most of the intelligentsia and and the police. I think the, the people that do like him are probably some of the um, the lower class, the the poor people. They tend to kind of get behind him. He's got kind of like the the, the quote unquote the people. But uh, the protesters are not very happy with just because they don't think he's going far enough. So he's kind of damned mm-hmm. if he does and damned if he doesn't. Right. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, but the, the generally the protests in New York have not de- degenerated into well, we would have heard about it if they had. Possibly, they haven't. Uh, everybody's kind of keeping a grip on their emotions at this point. Yeah, it seems very. I mean, everybody seems to be very reserved. Um, you know, the police that I've seen don't seem to be looking for a fight, which is good. They haven't really cracked down. Although um, they did use uh, an LRAD, I think, at one of the earlier protests to, to break it up when it was uh, when the, the Eric Garner <clears throat> non-indictment came down. There was a, mm-hmm. like a whole wave of action that week. And one of the protests, this was down the street from where I live on uh, 57th Street and about 5th Avenue, they had busted out an LRAD to kind of disperse the crowd because I think they were blocking traffic. Okay, what is what is an LRAD for anybody who an doesn't LRAD know? is a long range acoustic device. It's a basically a sonic weapon. It emits a high pitch uh, sort of like pulsing noise. It's like a siren basically. But imagine the okay. most irritating, obnoxious siren you can, and then it, you get close enough to it, and it can actually cause you physical pain. I mean, I can't stand regular sirens. So if you go on to YouTube, you can type in you know like LRAD. And uh, it'll it'll give you examples, and you can kind of hear what it sounds like. It's just like a very re- repetitive pulsing noise. Mm. So it forces people to move away, basically. Pretty high tech. Wow. Yeah, yeah I got a couple weapon. of those. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for letting us know the update, Brent. Uh, keep us informed in coming weeks. Yeah. Nothing like, interesting happens. Nothing like eyes on yeah, the ground. No all right, thanks for calling in. Keep going, keep listening. Later. Okay, take care, Brett. All right. <clears throat> well, just getting back for a moment to the Ebola story, uh, there was another interesting dimension to this, I thought, and that was that the uh, Ebola czar, or the head of the C- uh, CDC, was replaced um, by a gentleman who apparently, Ron Klein is his name, uh, had no prior experience in the medical profession oh, and seems to be more of a public relations uh, puppet than anything else uh, whose sole job it is is just to keep things mum. So that seems to be uh, part of the new agenda, I think, from up high. And I'm wondering if one day we're just going to hear, you know, in some alternative news or investigative blog, you know, 5,000 people determined to have some strange Ebola-like symptoms that that, that go beyond the, the normal flu or, or virus, you know, bleeding from orifices and, and whatnot. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Something to look forward to in 2015. Anything else on Ebola? No, that is a developing story. It's been a year now since the outbreak first started, I believe. I think that patient zero was December of 2013. And, yeah, it's not going away, so we'll be talking about that in the future, I'm sure. Um, moving on to other stories. Okay, another one of the biggest stories 
in the last year, of course, is the whole situation in Ukraine. Uh, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this show, and the, the guys on behind the headlines have talked about it a lot as well. So we won't get too much into it, of course, just in a nutshell. What happened? The U.S. staged a coup in in Kiev. Um, the, the Ukrainians living in East Ukraine said, well, we don't want any of that because you guys are racist fascists. And so that started a civil war where Kiev launched their forces against the civilian population in Donetsk and Lugansk and various other regions in East Ukraine. And, of course, the Western media has been telling us that this is all Putin's fault personally. Not just Russia, it is Putin. He, uh, and then, um, so, not only is he personally going out there and training all these rebel fighters, um, something big happened. The shootdown of MH17. And that, too, was Putin personally. Absolutely. He got, he drove out there got his Buk missile system set up, and he pushed the button that launched that missile to bring down that plane. Of course, that's not what happened. Um, you know, all the evidence points towards this being this plane being shot down by a Ukrainian jet. That's what we know. Now, so, new story, just in the last week. Um, now, this is, it's impossible to totally verify it at this point, but what we know is that um, a man who has who is still remaining anonymous at this point went to a Russian news program, gave an interview. Guy claims to be or to have been a member of Ukrainian army stationed at this airport um, where jets regularly took off daily to launch um, to basically drop bombs on the, the cities in Donetsk and Lugansk. Yeah, I think he was part of the ground crew. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so. What he says is that on the day of the downing of MH17, the planes took off as usual, these jets, these Su-25s, and three of them were equipped with air-to-air missiles. And this was odd because um, Donetsk, the rebels, the they the, they don't have an air force, they don't have planes, so why were they... Why did they have air-to-air missiles? Well, he said that they just they just had them. You know, they didn't need them. But well, not only that. Apparently, these missiles had been retired or decommissioned yeah. because they were quote out of date. I didn't know missiles had a best by date, but yeah. these had a best by date um, that had passed. And so that's what another thing that he noticed was these these missiles that were supposedly not to be used were all of a sudden on the plane, and that was very strange. Mm-hmm. And what, so when the so one of these planes when it comes back. It is now missing its air-to-air missiles. Pilot that comes out of the plane, I believe his name was Voloshin. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And he came out of the plane and he was kind of distraught, like, what's going on? And like he looked stressed out. And he said a couple things like, oh, the, it was the wrong plane. The plane was in the wrong place at the wrong time, implying that he had shot down this plane with an air-to-air missile. Now, of course, so so this guy telling the story, you can you can search. Um, we've got it on SOT. You can search it. It's uh, you can you can watch the video with him. You can read the translation transcript. And um, so he's so this guy's interviewed on this Russian news channel. And apparently, since then, um, some Russian authorities have 
interviewed him and apparently gave him a lie detector test, and he passed the lie detector test. So we'll have to see what comes out of this, because, of course, like I said, all the evidence points towards this being the scenario that took place, that, um, you know, the, right after MH17, very soon, very soon after, the Russians were the only ones that actually released any hard data, their, uh, their civilian air and, I believe, some military radar um, data, and the data that they released showed a Ukrainian jet in the air in the vicinity of MH17 at the time it went down. And, of course, it couldn't have been a, a book missile system, <clears throat> as the official story goes, for at least one obvious reason is that these systems are first very loud and they leave a very distinct trail behind the missile that's visible in the air. You, you look at it and it's like a column of smoke that's in the air. This would have been seen. No one saw it. There would have been photographs of it, but there's nothing of the sort. And the uh, you can even see interviews with locals in the little town where this happened that say they saw a jet, a jet or jets in the air at the same time. So it's pretty clear what happened. This wasn't a Russian attack. This was mm -hmm. Ukrainian. Now, as for what what really happened or why it was shot down, that's another question. Well, there's been several speculations. One is that it possibly was an attack directed against uh, Putin himself because his plane which has very similar markings to a Malaysia plane, passed an hour earlier through the area, although I'm, don't quote me on this, but possibly relatively near the flight corridor. So <clears throat> you can make a speculation that maybe this pilot had told he would be a hero of the Ukraine if he managed to bring down Putin or something like that. Um, so perhaps he had been sent up with this you know, historic mission that he was going to accomplish. Uh, and, you know, didn't realize. And, well, there's, there's there's so many threads to this story, and I'll just go sideways on it. Uh, the other question is why this plane, uh, if you follow the flight plot, the actual Malaysian plane, was deliberately diverted by Ukrainian air traffic controllers to fly over this disputed area when the normal air, cor air corridor would have taken them out of it. Uh, they eventually found the name of the of the controller who was in charge of this particular plane. Her name was Anna. Somebody knows her name. Anna. Petrenko, I believe. Anna Petrenko. Uh, she was the one who gave the instructions to alter the flight course. She immediately disappeared the next day, ostensibly going on holidays. Um, one reporter digging around tried to find out about her, had gotten hold of this name phoned up the brass at the Ukrainian Air Traffic Control Organization and said, you know, oh, we'd like to talk to this woman, we'd like to find out what happened, and was told that she, there was nobody of that name working there. But the reporter was quite persistent and a little bit smart, so he calls again, only he calls some low-level administrative guy and says, I'm looking for Anna Trenko, you know, is she available for interview? And he says, no, she's not here, she's gone on holiday. So they're caught in a lie right there. Uh, and another interesting thing is that somebody dug up her Facebook page, and she is very, very close to some high-level right sector guys. And right sector is Kolomoyski. 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 Yeah, he's he's the. We've talked about him a couple of times. He's the kind of oligarch in the region that uh, that has several basically mercenary armies at his disposal. These mm -hmm. are the. Like I believe, two, some of the, his battalions are like Idar and 
Azov Battalion, a few others. These are the these are basically the death squads that are going around in East Ukraine. Okay, so that's that's basically an interesting potential connection if you want to make something out of out of photographs on Facebook. But you know they seem pretty chummies too. So you could, if you really want to go out on a limb, say um, that this pilot was sent up possibly to accomplish this what would be an assassination and was not told that it was going to be this other plane. And so he, when he comes back, realizes what he's done, and he's extremely distraught about mm-hmm. it. But, I mean, what what political publicity, hey, you can make out of this incident? Well, there's a few interesting connections there. One, this Kolom- Kolomoisky guy, he's a dual Ukrainian-Israeli citizen. Oh, boy. And, and like I said, he's kind of... He's, He's kind of um, the main. There's Poroshenko and Kolomoisky, and they kind of don't get along very well. And they're two of the kind of big power holders in Ukraine. And when you factor in the fact that MH17 took off from Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands, which is kind of a den of Mossad, the Israeli secret service, secret intelligence agency, um, there are some. Interesting connections there. So what was really going on? Because um, Kolomoisky, he also controls the all the like air air traffic control and, and basically the airspace in that region. So he's kind of the, t- the top dog there. So you've got this Kolomoisky guy with ties to Israel. And remember that MH17 happened right, like, what was it, the day before the Gaza invasion? Just about. So convenient. And... So yeah, uh, we can't really know at this point exactly what happened, but it is curious that, uh, and it was only it was pretty soon after the, the crash that the the story about Putin's plane came out, and and that it was that it was traveling the same, pretty much in the same area or very very close, and that maybe it was a, a failed or, or a failed assassination attempt. Of course, the the Kremlin re- released a statement immediately after that, saying, "Oh no, Putin's plane was nowhere in in the area. That was false. All of our records are kept secret." Either way, the Kremlin is going to say that because, mm-hmm. yes, first of all, the there any head of state is going to keep their their flight plan as secret as possible to avoid things like this. But, you know, I suppose it is possible that somehow the Ukrainians had gotten a hold of this information, mm-hmm. which wasn't supposed to be. Um, like public to them at least, and that this this was a plan, or like you said, it could have been a kind of like a, a plan within a plan where they used this as a motivation to get this pilot up in the air mm-hmm. to take. And the, the the plan was to take down MH17, but this guy, you know, you can't really you can't really tell a guy, okay, you know, go up there and shoot down the civilian aircraft. It's right, like, it's not going to happen. Right. Well, we don't know, but yeah. <laughs> so another mystery that. Uh, well, not so much of a mystery, but good luck getting the truth out of the current investigators in the final investigation. And the, when is the report scheduled to come out? Like in another year? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing about the the air traffic controller, um, and I believe it was on the, the Russian documentary about this where they, where they talked about Petrenko, if that was the name, and that one of the first things that, that you usually do in a case is you take the the air traffickers immediately and you interview them and you basically question them. Uh, I think they quoted a, a case, uh, a French case, I believe it was. I can't remember what the what the crash was, but they basically immediately arrested the 
the air traffic controllers took them into custody in order to get their statements because they didn't want them colluding and making yeah. up a story that covered them. And there was nothing like that with in, in this case with MH17. The, the air traffic controllers weren't brought in. They weren't questioned. They're like this woman. She just disappeared. Um, we only found out about the, the air traffic records in that first preliminary kind of non-report that the that came out um, with the non-conclusion that high projectile uh, bits had taken down the plane. So another story that is ongoing, and you know we'll have updates next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Ukraine, um, I, I nearly fell off my chair the other day reading. Um, an interview that uh, Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk, uh, who was basically um, Washington's man in Ukraine, in addition to Poroshenko, uh, he had an interview with, um, I believe it was uh, Spiegel. Uh, Der Spiegel. Newspaper. Der Spiegel. German newspaper. And um, you know, he was being questioned about uh, the whole situation. And uh, the interviewer asked him if it was helpful to label Ukrainian military offensive uh, as an anti-terror operation when so many people in eastern Ukraine already viewed Kiev with suspicion, and rightfully so. And uh, Esenyuk, or Yat, uh, responded by saying, for a long time we have been trying to win the hearts of the people of Donetsk and Luhansk. Okay. And, <laughs> uh, this is... This is after months of uh, killing thousands of innocent people. And um, it, it was flabbergasting uh, to read about. And I, I thought just about how disconnected uh, the guy really is from reality and psychopathic. Well, and besides killing people, I'm going to put that at the top of the list. But they also cut their electricity in there and uh, I think water. So, way to win hearts and minds, guys. <laughs> Yeah, I guess Yats wanted their real hearts. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think he caught himself. He realized what he'd said after that, and then he kind of backtracked a bit and said, "Oh, and then, then the the whole situation erupted, and then the, and then there was the war." So they were trying to win the hearts before they were killing them, apparently. But I think what he actually meant is, like you said, William, he was just he's just like the guy in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom really wants to win their hearts, you know, by reaching at their chest and ripping them out. <laughs> That's that's the only conclusion I can come to from that thing. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. Thanks. So yeah, Ukraine brings us, of course, to Russia and another ongoing situation, Cold War 2.0. There's a lot. Of course, there's a lot to the whole situation. Why Russia? Why is the innovation of Putin and Russia in general so flabbergastingly apparent in the Western media and government? Just what's really going on here? Well, one one thing that's kind of become clear over the past year is that Russia does pose something of a threat to the West, but not in any kind of um, aggressive kind of we're an evil empire and we're going to take you over kind of way. It's more that Russia is going in a certain direction that is counter to the way that the West does things. And the way the West does things, of course, the way the United States does things, is 
we're on the top and we're going to tell you what to do and you're going to do what we tell you or else we're going to kill you. That's pretty much the, the gangster mentality that the United States has. In collaboration with the EU, uh, their puppets, their, their lackeys there, and of course Israel, um, NATO, the whole gang. So what's going on with Russia? Well, Russia and China have been developing an inter interesting relationship over the past year and more. Um, China has called their relationship and the kind of all of the facets of it a quote comprehensive strategic collaborative partnership, and that includes things such as an unprecedented amount of military cooperation, where they're actually sharing what used to be kind of top secret military information and protocols and um so basically doing um kind of what are they called the like projects and test missions and they've opened the safe yeah. and given each other the passwords yeah <laughs> and of course um Russia and China being right next to each other they they share a common geography as well as what what one has the other doesn't what one what one doesn't have the other has and so they have this kind of very close need for each other, and it it works out to be very mutually beneficial for both halves. So, for example, you know, Russia has energy, uh, coal, gas, oil, um, et cetera, and technology like satellite technology and space technology, uh, various types of military and civilian aircraft, submarines. China, on the other hand, um, brings to the table um, the kind of finance aspect, um, infrastructure building and capabilities. And so there have been a ton of trade deals back and forth um, between China and Russia, meetings, and of course they are both um, both members of several organizations, for example, BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. Now the SCO, as it's called, um, it's kind of a, a mutual security, political, and economic organization. So while it's not necessarily a military align, uh, alliance, is a military aspect to it in the kind of in kind of a, a, a regional um, police um, cooperation kind of thing going on there. Because all these regions suffer from the same problems, and this is where another common interest between China and Russia comes into play is anti-terrorism, because there is a terrorism problem in the world, if you haven't noticed, like ISIS, for example. We haven't talked about ISIS, but uh, we don't need to talk about them. They're crazy. But um, so in, well, first of all, SEO, that includes Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, also observer members such as Afghanistan, India, Iran, Mongolia, Pakistan, and so-called dialogue partners, including Belarus and Turkey, um, Turkey soon hopes to be a full-fledged member. I think they're, uh, it's possibly in 2015 they will become a full, uh, a full member of the SCO. And so what's going on with this terrorism thing? Well, for example, in China, um, you know, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Chinese names, but in the one, one region of China that's suffering like a, a terrorism problem, these are the guys that are basically joining ISIS. Um, for years... The police didn't even carry weapons in that region. But after these guys started showing up, um, now 
um, China in that region has adopted the strategy that was basically used in Chechnya and and is being used by the rebels in in Ukraine, uh, albeit in a different context. So they're not dealing necessarily with these like Wahhabi terrorists. They're dealing with Nazis, <clears throat> right sector neo-Nazis. Neo but basically their policy is now shoot on sight. So that's basically what they did in Chechnya. Um, like it, it, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, effectively brutal because now, of course, Chechnya is rebuilt and doesn't have terrorism. Yeah, but the guy, the, the head of Chechnya—that's his title. Um, Ramzan Kadyrov. <laughs> he basically came out and said, you know, not in so many words, but he said, "We we have to treat this like a disease," mm -hmm. and. Um, he was decried all over the place that they shot terrorists on site and they they took the families and booted them out of the country and burned down their houses. And it's funny because you, you see these tactics applied by those you consider good guys, for lack of a better word, and those are considered bad guys. But um, it it does drop the level of terrorism it's 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 a very murky thing it's it's that's the why of why you're doing things mm -hmm. um and his rationale was well the families all knew they all approved and you know they they had to go and it's harsh but when you've tried everything else that's kind of what's left you know? yeah, and it's not and it's not applied i mean what was going through my head is well israel does the same thing they boot you out they burn down your house but I think because um, these tactics are being applied selectively and not as a, um, what's the word, uh, collective punishment. Mm -hmm. It's being applied only to those who are creating problems, who are killing and bombing, and you get rid of those particular people and things get calm again. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's, you know, that's this, this third force, if you will. Sorry for that. But it just means that each situation is unique and you can't you can't apply the same brush even though it may look the same on the surface. Well and that's if if you look at these airstrikes on ISIS, I mean it is just um indiscriminate slaughter basically. Mm -hmm. Now except and and the world and leaders seem to accept that as a viable option when they're dealing with the enemy of their choice other alleged enemies use the same rationale to do the same thing, then it's evil and, um, you know, a violation of human rights. Well, you know, that, and, and again, that's a whole, a whole other topic because when you look at what these guys were, what these terrorists were doing in Chechnya and are doing in Syria and Iraq, I mean, uh, well, we won't get into that. <laughs> Another show. <laughs> Another show. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say that, um, you know, going back to Russia and uh, stupid psychopathic leadership. So Russia is the enemy and must be brought to her knees. And one of the weapons that have been wielded is driving down the oil price. So here's the U.S. and Saudi Arabia colluding. Saudi is presumably at the direction of the U.S. driving down the price of oil. Uh, at the very local level, we're not all that unhappy about it. I mean, who doesn't mind paying 40 cents off a gallon for gas? But the stupidity part is, and then you kind of wonder about about uh, plans within plans. Saudi Arabia will now have its first uh, 
massive budget deficit is something like $39 billion and are proposing to cut social programs within their own country and to cut wages and salaries. And half the population works for the government. So they're going to create a lot of unhappiness at home. The U.S., for its part, is shooting itself in the foot because most of their oil and gas exports, and this is only recently that the U.S. has been an oil and gas exporting country, come from shale gas and fracking, which is only viable between 80 and $100 a barrel price. So by driving it down to 60 and the Saudis are quite willing to let it drop to 40 both countries are eviscerating themselves. Uh, there's already uh, uh, oil drilling sh- uh, fracking programs that are shutting down in different parts of the country. Uh, this is a classic boom and bust, and I used to live in Canada, so I know what that looks like. It's ugly, ugly, ugly. And Russia, for its part, is kind of laughing because along with this, uh, they have let their ruble devalue. It does not affect prices within the country. So as far as they're concerned internally, there really isn't a whole lot going on while there's, it's trumpeted that uh, Russia will be brought to its knees and rampant inflation and all this other stuff. And the fundamentals of the Russian economy are so strong that they probably will weather this crisis. And Putin has been very frank about that, that two years are going to be unhappy and uncomfortable. But at the end of two years, they, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. and anybody else colluding in this simply can't afford to carry on that policy for a long time. And they are in no shape themselves to carry on that policy. So he, Putin has high hopes that the oil price will bounce faster than most people think. Um, it's just dumb. Yeah, it's at just least, dumb. Uh, at least four U.S. states are having to rebalance their budgets now. That's Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Alaska <clears throat> due to this lower uh, oil prices. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing, uh, I saw an interesting analysis of uh, speculating that Saudi Arabia is willing to take this kind of a hit because they want to knock their competitors out of the market, the competitors ostensibly being Russia and Iran and other oil-heavy countries, Venezuela, but that without saying so, the U.S. is on that list too. They don't want any competition. Well, there's another dimension to uh, the whole Russia-China connection and what makes them economically strong and able to weather this situation. And, and that is that they're buying up uh, just unprecedented amounts of gold. And not only that, but they're um, they're trading uh, their goods and services with each other with gold. And what does the U.S. have? It, it has a lot of paper. Uh, it's got a lot of um, – it's been printing money for the past uh, how many years, and, and that's going to lead in all probability to a state of hyperinflation when people realize that it's not backed up by anything. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people speculating about the fact that the U.S. doesn't own very much gold anymore. So there's that also. Mm-hmm. The barbarous relic will return. <laughs> well, back to this China-Russia thing again. Um, one of the interesting things that I learned recently was that China actually had several close um, business relationships with Ukraine, and they had several uh, development contracts in the works prior to the Ukraine uh, kind of blowing up on itself. These contracts, of course, are now stalled, but Ukraine was kind of this strategic position for China, not anymore. 
but uh, this hasn't done. So this is kind of, uh, it's brought China out of the influence of Europe a little bit in that area, but it's also brought them closer with Russia. And one of the things that China said recently is that they'll, you know, they'll do anything they can to help Russia if they need it with this ruble crisis. So Russia has a big ally there. Now, one of the interesting developments in the middle of November was that the defense ministers of China and Russia got together. That was Shoigu and Li Keqiang. And so they talked, they had, they had some talks, and, you know, it's uncertain. All, all these meetings, you can never tell all the things that they talk about. But there was an article recently that we put up on SOT, um, giving some interesting speculations on, on what went on, because right after that meeting, Shoigu then went to Pakistan. So what were they? What could they have been talking about? Well, this author um, brings up the possibility that they might have been talking about North Korea. And basically, Russia. So with Russia saying, "Well, um, so what we basically we want we want North Korea to get rid of their nuclear weapons program in in return for us protecting them." Now, of course, this would totally change the game, the the geostrategic chessboard, if North Korea were no longer this existential threat, and uh, and so and of course Pakistan is has ties with North Korea in the, in this nuclear program. So Pakistan kind of provides the technology. So um, so the possibility is that Russia is basically taking a, kind of like what they did with Syria, getting um, getting Syria Assad to get rid of serious chemical weapons, do the same thing in North Korea, and kind of be, go to Pakistan and say, okay, you know, guys, it'll be all right. We'll We'll throw in a few extras for you guys if if we go along with this project. And so this was November 18th. And then what happens, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, we have this whole Sony hack and the interview movie fiasco blow up. And now the U.S. is is itching to get North Korea back on this on the terror list. So what's going on with that? Yeah, you know, if, if they take North Korea out of the picture as a threat. That's one less bully to terrorize your local population with. And also, it alters the, the political balances, not just in North Korea, but also into the Philippines and all those island areas. Um, and my God, Putin would be a peacemaker. Look, he is taking away the nuclear threat to the world and destruction, and, and they can't allow that. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> Which makes me wonder about this Sony hack. Mm-hmm. So... If I get any of these details wrong, you guys just jump in and, and let me... Well, first of all, um, and a little side break in the conversation, I just want to let our listeners know that you can call in any time, as usual. Um, the number is 718-508-9499. It's right there on the page if you go to Blog Talk Radio. And also, the Skype option is now available again, so you can try that. So back to this... Sony hack thing. So we've got this movie, this kind of, um, how do you call it, lowbrow humor farce. farce movie where these guys, you know, go to North Korea with the intention to assassinate the leader. What's his name again? Kim Il-sung or something? Kim Il-sung. <laughs> something like that. Sorry. <laughs> President Kim. And so th- this movie, of course, really insulted the North Koreans. They're like, oh, how can you do this? How can you make a movie about assassinating our leader? It is 
really in bad taste when you think about it, but that's Hollywood. And so then there's, and so this movie was produced by Sony, and then there was this Sony hack by this group of this this group of hackers, what were they called, Guardians of Peace or something like that. And so then the movie the movie release was canceled. Everyone's like, oh no, we can't release this. We're giving and then oh we're giving in to North Korea and freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah, and freedom of speech and all that. And so the the hack was immediately blamed on North Korea. But there have been several um, reports coming out about that that say there's really no evidence that this attack came out of North Korea. So isn't isn't it convenient that this hack was blamed on North Korea? Well, North Korea has such a small internet presence. Yeah, there's one ISP. One, there's one ISP for the entire. The NSA could stick a little microphone on the side and know everything that is going in and out of the country. It's, it's just it's just an absurd proposition. And the fact that the I don't know a lot about hacking. I'm not a computer guy, but the, the fact that the I think the, the the software program I don't know the word used for it that was used in this hack was developed or had ties with North Korea in the past, and so they're using that as the tie to link this to North Korea. Whereas this this code was was leaked like years ago and could be used by anyone. So that is an evidence that this was done in North Korea. Also, the fact that there's apparently this ex-Sony employee, Lena or something, that had ties with this hacking group and could have been responsible. So this basically could have been an inside job. And as soon as a few days ago, I found out that, you know, I popped, I opened up Facebook, and one of the first things I saw was, oh, the interview is now available to view on all these websites. And so they'd made it available on like YouTube and Google Play and all these other websites so you can pay to watch it. And I thought, well, wow, what a great PR campaign to make this movie a global phenomenon and then release it. So so first it's going to be released, then it's not going to be released, and everyone's like, oh, my God, uh, we can't watch a movie, freedom of speech. And then, oh, hey, yeah, we'll release it. And then it gets released, and so they must have made quite a bit on that. I don't know if I could quite go there because Sony was incredibly damaged. I mean, stuff came out. Uh, oh, by the leak. leak by the leak. Yeah. The leak was, was incredibly destructive in terms of uh, the information that was released. I think there's a couple of class action suits by employees whose uh, you know, personal social security numbers, personal addresses, phone numbers all came out. Very, very unflattering emails by one of the top brass about, you know, how they evaluated projects. I mean, Hollywood, you know, reporters and people who are interested in how the, the movie business functions were just making hay with this. But to, for Sony itself to have this as a publicity stunt, that, yeah. I don't, you know. Yeah, no, that's, so I don't think. They capitalized on oh, it yeah, for sure. They capitalized on it. So that that's actually what me, leads me to think that it wasn't a so-called inside job. Mm. Um, on the part of Sony, but who else would stand to gain by this? So in November, we have these possible talks regarding North Korea by Russia and uh, and China and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if this was a response to that, to kind of head that off at the pass, to, to revilify North Korea so that this couldn't happen. Because, of course, as soon as this happened, North Korea um, on their national like news broadcast system released just this they always release kind of 
<laughs> the funniest statements. Bombastic. Yeah, bom- pretty bombastic. I mean, it's it would make their statements would make a good movie in itself just because they're so over the top. But they basically responded saying that they were going to to launch certain types of attacks on the the, the pillars of of the Western world, including like a. Well, they were going to do a nine eleven style attack on some movie theaters, and it was it was just nuts. It yeah. was nuts. But then you wonder if this wasn't a, a psychological manipulation that they, uh, you know, whoever masterminded this, and if, is there a mastermind? But North Korea is very prickly about mm-hmm. its its world image, and they would immediately respond in just that way. Mm-hmm. So just anything that, that would damage their, their sense of their, their face, if you will, on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Um so they could be manipulated into making all these statements and, and creating all of this uproar mm-hmm. and conveniently making them look like insane bad guys. Yeah, and then, then you use that response as a justification for like a, like getting them back on this terrorist list. Mm-hmm. Again, all, all very convenient. <laughs> but and, and, and this just shows the mentality of the people involved here that rather than have... Uh, a nuclear-free North Korea or a chemical weapons-free Syria. These these are all things that the 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 West doesn't want. They want a nuclear Korea and they want chemical weapons in Syria because that gives them the excuse to go in there to to have an enemy and, for example, in Syria to go in there and kill a whole bunch of people and take down Assad and put in a government that they want. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of cynical approach that these guys take. It's the best option for making the world a better place. How do we deal with these people diplomatically and as human beings to come to a conclusion and come to a solution that works for both sides? No, it's we want this, and so we're going to take it, and we're going to kill you if you don't listen to us. Mm-hmm. We want it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Well, just uh, another thing, going back to Russia and China, and then how neatly they fit into each other. There's a great article called uh, Russia, China, and the Double Helix. And uh, it talks about how China has manufacturing and they need raw materials. Russia has it. China has a huge population. Russia actually, for the size of the country, does not have uh, the kind of population you would expect. But they have the best, some of the best universities in the world. And I read just today that over 25,000 Chinese Students have gone to Russia for training. Um, Russia's currency currently needs support. China has huge reserves, huge reserves of currency. So it, it really is kind of a match made in heaven. And each of them are very conscious of defending their country, but they are neither of them aggressive. Russia hasn't attacked anybody. I think in almost 300 years, and neither has China. They will defend themselves mm-hmm. vociferously, but they they are not going out and trying to acquire more territory, despite what everybody says about Crimea. We have to say it again. Crimea voted to go back to Russia. Mm-hmm. But they have they were not taken by force in Russia, even though the Donbass is, is there for the taking, has very, very clearly stated that they should stay in Ukraine with some you know, with proper accommodation to the to the area's needs. But uh the other thing about uh this alliance, if you will, on so many levels, is it does allow them to decouple from the U.S. dollar. It lets them get around all of these uh, treaties, the TTP and the uh, TTIP, which are trade protocols, which are heavily weighted to the U.S. advantage. 
And uh, they can simply ignore it and say, okay, you know, that's nice. You have this treaty. We don't need to be part of it. So, yeah. That reminded me of, of another global development over the past year with the Crimean referendum. Mm-hmm. Because, as you said, the Crimeans held a referendum without the permission of their evil masters, which is verboten in democracy, apparently. Mm. And it was a successful referendum. They voted 97% to leave Ukraine and rejoin Russia. Crimea used to be part of Russia. And now is again. And then after Crimea, we saw the, the referendums held in Donetsk and Lugansk, where they declared themselves independent from Ukraine. Not, none of those three referendums were accepted as legal by most of the world for silly reasons. Most of the Western world. Most of the Western world. And But then after that, we saw referendum fever in the world. And so there was the Scottish referendum, which was not allowed to, to go the way it really did go. Mm-hmm. And that kind of put the dampers on other um, kind of separatist movements. There's mm-hmm. Catalonia. And so Catalonians kind of bowed down to the will of their evil masters after the government said, oh, it would be illegal to hold, hold this referendum. So they held like kind of like a token um, a token referendum where they just took the votes even though it wouldn't be legally binding and 80% of the population agreed with separating. And there were other uh, referendums planned. For example, oh, I guess there was one planned in Venice mm-hmm. in Italy. Mm-hmm. Northern Italy. Northern Italy. So we've we've got this, this trend of people wanting to exercise their right of self-determination and not being allowed to, and those that do, not being taken seriously. So I, I just think this is a, a great triumph for democracy across the world. Because things are going exactly the way they are going because, I mean, people voting to do what they want to do, that, that's not democracy. Didn't uh, a few years ago Texas and like uh, Vermont want to secede from the from the U.S. or yep. something and become yep. its own uh, thing as well. I think that's kind of a sentiment in North Dakota, too. And they could. They've got a very sound financial setting. <laughs> and going back to Russia, uh, Putin just uh, released a statement. Well, Putin's government released a statement, which is probably the strongest yet regarding NATO and the U.S. as some of the biggest enemies to peace in the world. However, they phrased it very carefully saying NATO policies, not NATO itself, but it's probably been the bluntest statement coming out of Russia to date. And so you wonder what the next what the next move is going to be when you're, you know, not couching your your uh sentiment so carefully anymore. Hate the sin, not the sinner. <laughs> Just to bring things back to, to- to some religious feeling. Well, I think we, we might be out of ideas for the week. Mm-hmm. I think we covered every every global event of major significance in the past year. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Good. So, yeah, I think that's going to be it for tonight. So, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Brent for calling in. Thank you to Elon, Carolyn, and William. 
Okay. Everybody have a festive holiday season. Happy New Year. Be safe. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye, everyone. See you next week. <laughs>